I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Colin Armstrong, better known under his pseudonym of Chris Ryan, SAS veteran, author, TV presenter and podcast host. During his 10 years in the SAS, Chris made SAS history during the first Gulf War by trekking 200 miles across desert. He wrote about his experience in the bestseller, The One That Got Away, and went on to create ITV series, Ultimate Force and Sky Strike Back. Watch this interview to get into the mind behind a man's refusal to lie down and die. Chris, I am so excited and I've got to say, First of all, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. No, it's nice to meet you, Sonia. And I've got, we've got, we've got to comment about the background because I'm sure there's people, you know, tuning in thinking, wow, what a lovely kitchen I've got. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, where are you? <laughs> uh, I'm in a place called Morzine and it's in the French Alps. Um, it's a, predominantly a ski resort, but... Um, during the summer months, um, they hold uh, the world uh, downhill mountain biking. Um, so it's quite an active place. It's, re it's really friendly. And it's, it's obviously very picturesque. A um, hundred years ago, before skiing started, it was a mining town. So thankfully, you don't have the high like concrete skyscrapers. It's all quaint chalets. And um, yeah, I just, I, I came here Oh, 20 years ago, I was doing a road trip. And um, when I was plotting the route, I went on onto the internet and looked for um, Morzine. And what came up was um, Century 21, the estate agents. And on their front cover, there was a picture of this roof of the house. Well, when I drove over, um, I got lost. And as I was coming up the road to Avoria, I saw the roof. So I stopped the car. It, the house was for sale. So I went back into town, saw the agent, came up. She brought the wrong keys, so I never got to look inside the house. But I walked around, and there's another balcony down below. And when I looked across, it was in September, and it was an Indian summer, and it was absolutely stunning. And she said, do you want to come back uh, to view inside the house? I said, mm, if the view's this good, the house has got to be really nice. First mistake. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so I, I bought it um, and then cracked on on the tour. But the good thing is, if I'd actually entered this place, I wouldn't have bought the house. Um, it was rammed with furniture. There was the French usually put like this carpeting on the walls and it was like dark and dowdy. The kitchen was in the wrong place. So when I came back, you know, I videoed it and basically I couldn't release that video because there was too many, um, too much swearing. And I was like, what? I was just like, you what have I done? Place on the outside. <laughs> yes, totally. And you hear of Brits doing it. And I would have sworn before then I wouldn't have done it. But as it was, it took a year um, to get it to how I wanted it. And I'm really pleased. It's a, it's a great spot to just come and chill out, do some work. As you can see, there's there's the there's loads of walks up here. Um, that's the neon that you can ski from the top to the bottom of the valley. Further over is Leger, and uh, the 640 kilometers of skiing. So, so I missed out on doing an on location filming with you. <laughs> should have said. Should have said. <laughs> 
Well, Chris, look, it's good to have a fellow Geordie on, on the podcast as well. Um, you're from a few few miles from where I'm from, originally in Newcastle, so it's always good to, to have somebody from up north. Um, but what I, I mean, you've had such an amazing um, career, I guess, and what I really want to delve into is something that happened now 30 years ago. It is the 30 years anniversary, yeah, it is. isn't it, of Bravo 2-0, the Bravo 2-0 mission. Um, and you brought out the book, the one that got away, uh, under your pseudonym, which is Chris Ryan, because that, that's actually not your real name. No, no, my real name's Colin Armstrong, uh, and, you know, I, I don't hide it now. The reason I had a pseudonym back then, it would be in 94, I only had the, the intention of writing one book, and it was to get my side of the story out, because, again, there were several people you know, um, publishing books, and they were talking about my escape. And I thought, well, there's only there was only one person there for them seven days and eight nights, and it was me. And another thing that happened, I actually got stitched up by a TV production company. Um, I, I was I was left the regiment. Um, I was running two large bodyguard teams, and um, I was approached by a director and a producer, and they said they wanted to make a re a, like a, a, a a realistic dramatization of my escape. Well, naively, I signed a contract without consultation rights and I got stitched up. So without going into that negativity, basically the movie came out, it was, it was disgraceful. And to counter that, I went to a publishing house and said, would you be prepared to publish my account of my escape? And that's how it happened. Now, skipping over that, um, because the one that got away it had been a publishing success. I think it was number one for about 18 weeks. And um, my editor said, will you do another, another book? No, not interested. And um, I just left the publishing house. I got back to Hereford and there'd been some negativity um, from the hierarchy within the SAS. And they said they wanted to ruin me. So at that point I went, oh, okay. So I phoned my editor up and I said, I'll be interested to do some more books and how many would you like me to do? <laughs> and down the way, it, I think it's, I'm up to about number 75. If, if they hadn't said that back in 94, there would have only been the one book and the Chris Ryan brand wouldn't have happened or it would have, it would have disappeared. And then I could have disappeared because going back to them days, I still had a price on my head from certain organizations. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's Talk been a pain. Well, it's been a pain because what happened, it, it actually affected my, my daughter. Um, four years ago, I, I spent most of my time in America. I, I received a phone call from Scotland Yard, uh, the anti-terrorist team. And um, when I contacted them, I thought, no, it's obviously some nut has made a threat against me mm. and it hadn't, there was a death threat and it had been greenlit and it was Islamic based and it was against my daughter. So for wow, two that, years. That makes you feel because you're so okay, protecting Sonia, everybody else. I guess when so, it comes home. Yeah. Sonia, I've been in some really scary situations in my life, certainly my time in the SAS and I could manage them. 
And I knew there was a risk. In, on some occasions, life expectancy was measured in, say, seconds or minutes. But I can still tell you the exact spot I was standing in my house when the detective said, um, uh, where's your daughter? We need to have guys on your daughter right now. She ended up with two policemen on her doorstep uh, for two years until, until some of these guys were dealt with or apprehended. And, and she's safe now. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I said to her, listen, either come out to America or get out to France and um, stay there. And like most daughters, very pig-headed and knows best. And she said, not a chance. I've just had an extension put onto my house and I'm not leaving. And then she said, dad, I've got my shotgun. And I was like, please. <laughs> Because she does a lot of clay pigeon shooting. Did you, I was like, Did you teach her to shoot? Yes. Yeah, yeah. All of that. I mean, she's a very good shot. It was actually when she was at Exeter, Un Exeter University. Um, she um, joined the um, uh, the gun club and they would be in competitions, shoot, you know, uh, at clay pigeons and things like that. Do you think that's so, yeah. off your block? Do you think she liked that? Uh, no, no, no. There's okay. another story about my daughter. Obviously, she went to um, an all-girls school and uh, went to Exeter, got her um, master's in English literature, English philosophy, art. And she wanted to move into publishing. And I said, mm, Sarah, I'm not sure if it will be for you. And she wanted to be an editor. So un under her own scheme, as I didn't ask to help in any way, she uh, got a job, but she hated it. So she stopped. Then I got a message saying um, she is running an art gallery. She's opened her own art gallery in London and she's selling art. So I went, that's great. So next time I saw her, I'm sitting there, Sarah, where, what type of art do you sell? Because I've got an interest in art. Yeah. And she went, well, it's all sorts, Dad. Um, you know, you can't just put my finger on it. And I went, well, who's your client? She went, oh, I have repeat, a repeat clients. Then we have one-off days where loads of people come in so about a month later I got a message saying I'm running an art gallery in LA and I, I said have you got a work permit and she went well not really but don't worry about that dad and I'm my neighbor is the head of immigration for god's sake of course I'm going to worry so it was two years ago um she came and she said listen uh, you know, I said it was an art gallery. Um, it's just, actually, it's a tattoo parlor. <laughs> I went, lovely. I had to I've go never heard of all that before, but that's uh, a great well, <laughs> I had to walk into another room, stick my head under a cushion, and scream my head off. As it is, she's happy doing it, so I'm happy that she's happy. I'm not a great lover of tattoos, but, you know, it is, it's the culture there. Um, she's a very good artist, so what the heck? You know, I just thought. So, so you haven't had that? SAS or your wings or anything tattooed on your back? Uh, well, I've got a mark on my back only because she forced me into it, um, and I still wasn't happy about getting it put on there. But I don't like vis visual tattoos in a, in, you know. In fact, I was always told by my father um, I would be punished if I went out to get a tattoo. And I can remember going into Newcastle with my brother and on Clayton Street, there was a tattoo like studio. And this guy was getting a tattoo and he was squealing. 
And I said to Keith, run. <laughs> so he was like, get out of there. Oh, great, great. So, Sorry, I took you off track there. No, I, well, I, I love it actually, because it just shows, it completely shows a different side. And the one the one bit that I'm, I'm quite fascinated is that that was, you, you told me about your daughter and how that was the moment that really hurt you the most or scared you the most. Yeah, I know your story and um, what you went through um, 30 years ago. Can I take you back then for the back sure thing. Yeah, for absolutely. the audience? Um, now this was back in 1991, and I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember 1991. <laughs> sure, but there might not be not might not be a lot of people there that remember that. Depending. So sorry. I'll, I'll, I, yes, I'll hand over to you, Chris. Right. Well, what would, what had happened prior to that? Um, in the back end of uh, 1990, I was getting ready for an Everest expedition. And um, the way the SAS works, the, the four squadrons rotate around different roles. And it, it used to change from six months to nine months. And we were on the anti-terrorist team and they're the guys dressed in the black stuff and everything else. And um, in the August when Saddam invaded, or July, uh, invaded Kuwait, I was told that um, I was still going on the expedition. Um, I wasn't to do, you know, worry about any build-up training or anything like that. And then in the December, I was told you're deploying out to the Middle East with um, A squadron and D squadron, but it will only be half of B squadron. And those guys, and I was B squadron, um, what we would become is battlefield casualty replacements. So that meant... When A squadron and D squadron, squadron went on the ground, if any of the guys were killed or injured, one of us would go in and take over that guy's position. So during the build-up training, we were the poor cousins because, again, it was like we, they're not going to be going out anywhere, so we didn't get much training. We certainly didn't have the right equipment. Behind the scenes, um, General Swartkoff and uh, de Billier were at loggerheads about putting boots on the ground. Schwarzkopf, quite rightly, wanted to keep sending over the, the big bombers and just keep bombing the Iraqi positions. And then he said, we can roll armor over. The other problem that was happening is uh, Saddam kept firing scuds and a lot of them were hitting Israel. So there was a, there was a big risk that Israel could come into, the, into this conflict, which would complicate everything in terms of whose side, you know, or where was the alliances and everything else. So it was decided to send three patrols into northern Iraq in the Ambar region, which was very loyal to Saddam Hussein. And um, we, were put, we were to put uh, observation posts in, in on main supply routes. And if we saw a scud going down the road, we would then call in and then bring fast air to destroy that um, missile. So... I'll quickly run over some of the failings. Somebody had lost all our personal weapons or pistols. Uh, so when you had uh, long weapons, there's a, a mine called a claymore and we use it for protection. Um, whether you're in a static location or if you're being followed up by enemy forces, they'd all gone missing. My map dated back to 1944. My smock that they gave me, a sandy smock, had a date of 1940 on it. Oh my God. 
I mean, was this all because they didn't really think you were going to get in, involved? In yeah, like A, yeah, A Squadron and D Squadron had all the kit yeah. and they had all the big the vehicles and platforms and weapon systems. I had to go to a, a friend in A Squadron and beg him to give me 40 mil grenades because I had a 203 rifle, which has a grenade launcher slung underneath it. Um, we had one temp attempt to fly in. Um, which was, we had to pull back because there was a bombing raid going on. So we flew in the next night. Our rucksacks weighed in, well, from anything from 120 to 150 pound. Our belt kits that mm -hmm. has the ammunition, they weighed anything from 40 to 50 pound. And then we had a jerry can of water, which was 50 pound and an NBC suit uh, for chemical weapons and extra rations. Now, with that type of weight, even an SAS soldier can't operate. So we were ferrying this kit in and we got to the point, we got in all right, very quiet. Once we got on the ground, we were expecting to dig underneath the sand. Well, what we found was it was hard bed rock. So we were above the surface and um, we couldn't get established comms because basically we were saying, really, we should be relocated. What had happened is the young signaler who had worked out the frequencies had worked out frequencies um, for Kuwait. Well, we were north of Baghdad, and that's like me having your home number, but not your city dialing code. So there was no chance of getting through. Well, um, as daylight lifted, we started to have a look around, and then there was a ridge <clears throat> to our north ran from left to right and on top of it was a large anti-aircraft um, gun. Now we knew that the Iraqi officers were very good desert tacticians because we had trained them two years before in Sandhurst. So we were either very close to a military facility or there was troops in reserve and these anti-aircraft guns were there to protect them. So that night we went out and did recce's all over the place and we found multiple anti-aircraft positions. The next day we were compromised by a young goat herder and um, he brought in a guy that had a, a, like a, a large bulldozer. He came into the Wadi system, he could see us, he disappeared. We knew we'd been compromised um, <clears throat> I got onto the radio and I started knocking out uh, Morse code and I contacted a guy in Cyprus who had nothing to do with the regiment. I gave him a couple of code words and said, you know, we're, we've compromised, we're going to the um, emergency pickup and then ended. Well, as we started to walk out of the, um, the Wadi system, there was two guys, I would have said they were probably in their 40s, 50s, hard to tell half in military dress, half in civilian, but they had two AK-47s. And they started to parallel us. So I, I, I called to the guys and I said, listen, we've got company, gather up. Now, if you can imagine these Wadi systems come in all shapes and sizes, the, the, the bank side that they were on rose really steeply. Um, but to our right, there was a gradual elevation but it was, uh, it was higher than, than the left side. Well, at one point, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to try and bluff my way. I, I will um, wave at these guys. So I lifted my left hand and waved at them, which was obviously an insult. 
and uh, they started shooting. So we returned fire. Uh, we dropped these two guys and then um, more or less at the same time, several trucks, trucks turned up and Iraqi soldiers started to, to the bus and um, it got very sporty. Um, Were you outnumbered at this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, outnumbered probably five to one. There's, there was probably 20, 30 of them. And the, the ground was erupting and um, we were doing bursts, oh, like pepper, what they call pepper potting. It's where you run back a couple of meters, you, you turn around, return fire, and then move in, like fire in movement. And um, I can remember just shouting, well, we all shouted, we've got, to, we've got to drop our rucksacks, which meant we're losing our radios, our food, our warm kit. Because another thing, Iraq was having the coldest winter in 30 years. It you was, don't really think of cold weather when you think of Iraq. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, it was that cold with the other squadrons. They were having to put little burners under the uh, fuel tanks on the Land Rovers because the diesel was going to jelly. It was that cold. I'll, I'll get you. I'm going to give you an example of how cold it is without being too graphic. But we lost all our kit. We broke contact with the Iraqis. The firefight went on for 45 minutes. And the anti-aircraft positions, at some point, we came into view of them, and then they started firing at us. And honestly, the shell, the, the size of the shell from an anti-aircraft position, if it hits you, you vaporized. You know, these things were whizzing over our head. And as I said, we um, broke contact. We gathered our thoughts. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe nobody had been hit. So the way, the way it was, we decided to put what they call a dog's leg in um, to make it look like we were heading south to Saudi. And at some point, we would walk over to the west and then head north to Syria. And that's what we did. And it, it seemed to work out, except when we turned to walk north, the patrol was split up. And um, one of the guys had gone down with heat exhaustion because he couldn't get his um, thermal underwear on. And during the, the firefight, he'd sweated himself dry. Um, I ended up maybe about 15 kilometers down to the left of the original uh, ridge line. So as I got there, turned around, I had two guys. Uh, one didn't have a weapon. So I ran to the top of this ridge line. I had my night sight. I was scouring for looking for the other five guys. And um, nothing. I got onto a, an emergency tack, be it um, 12 o'clock midnight, and then uh, zero dark 30, um, 30 minutes later, and uh, got no response whatsoever. So I said, the guys, we've got to start pushing away from this place because the tracks are there and the Iraqis will sweep through. So we walked for, um, it was about another 30 kilometers. We did a total of 70 kilometers that night. That's 50 miles and the ground that we covered, well, it was like large rocks and all of us ended up with like blistered feet. I mean, we were shifting, plus our bell kits were still about 45 to 50 pounds and a 17 pound rifle. So we found ourselves in the open and the only thing I came across was what they call a tank berm. And a tank berm is a, it's a load of soil that's been pushed up to a height of maybe eight feet on three sides. A tank can come in, it has like protection around there and it can fire out. 
well, there had been a tank in because it had subsided. So there was a little ditch and um, we, we lay in that ditch. And the next thing I was just waiting for the sun to come up. Um, I felt pins and needles on my face. I was going to say, and it was a drop because it was nighttime. Well, it was well no, it started snowing. It started snowing. It snowing. Yeah. And we didn't have any protection clothing or anything. It snowed and rained. But what I could see about 800 meters away was a, a boxed body vehicle or a pr permanent structure with a, a large mat, a mast. And there was at least um, four Iraqi soldiers around it. So I said to the guys, we're going to have to stay switched on here because within the Middle Eastern culture, they won't go to the toilet in front of one another. They would walk, you know, an hour to get privacy. And this was the only place where they could do that. As it was, the snow started bleaching down and then it would go turn to water. Now, I'm a qualified Alpine guide. I spent a year and a half being trained in Germany. I've, been, I've worked in some of the coldest places in the world. I knew it wasn't the Iraqis that was going to be the problem. We were going to die of Mother Nature. And it was, we were going down and there's nothing you can do about it. There was no going seeking help because in the Ambar region, everybody was loyal to Saddam. And um, basically, it's something I have to live with because I know I, it was through my actions, a guy died that night. Now, I said to them, we're not moving until it's dark. And um, when it came, when darkness fell, Vince was suffering from really severe um, hypothermia. So I gave, I took his weapon off him, gave it to um, Stan. And um, I said I would navigate up front. Now, my hands, I'd lost the use of my hands, my feet. Um, the cold was in my spine, everything. Now, as we were walking, when you have severe hypothermia, you have mood swings. You can either, you can start crying, you can get very violent, you want to start screaming and shouting. Well, I knew because of the way our hands were, we couldn't oper operate our weapons. So if we bump into an enemy position, we're screwed. So I said to Stan, you, you keep Vince behind. I will walk about 50 meters in front. And if I, if I see the enemy, I will back off and then we'll skirt around them. Um, and at one point, I think it was close to midnight, um, Stan said, I've lost track of Vince. And um, I, I, I started walking back, going over the footprints, but you would come into large areas where the snow had drifted. And if your line of march was, say, straight through the, the screen here, when I entered, say, the left, I was going to the right, and my footprints weren't there. They were actually at a nine o'clock position. And this happened about four times, and I realized we were zigzagging like that, and it was me that was navigating. And that's when I realized how bad I was suffering from hypothermia. Now, we were walking back into the enemy position, and put my hand up. It was me that said, I'm taking responsibility. I'm calling off this search and we're going to carry on. Now, I know for a fact what would have happened with Vince is he would have found, he would have found a hollow. He would have sat in that hollow wanting to go to sleep. 
he would have stripped his clothes off and he would have died very, very quickly. Because again, it's a, it's a reaction where when, you, when you're at the, at the latter stages of hypothermia, your body has a flush and you start stripping clothes off and then bang, you're dead. Thankfully, the Iraqis uh, returned Vince's body back. I went to the coroner's inquiry and um, he said Vince died a day before, a day after he died that night. But I'll tell you what, it's something sobering when, first of all, you know, or I knew he was going to die, but there was nothing we could do. Can I ask and, oh, if you had to make that decision again? Would you make a different decision? Yeah, I would have made the same decision because we wouldn't have found him and then I would have killed myself and Stan. Mm. Um, having said that, I knew if this storm didn't end, we'd both be dead by um, first light. And you know what? In, I think in, this, in civilian life, you don't get them life and death situations at, at work. And... I, I now can't get my head around how I was reacting, you know, quite calmly, knowing that, yeah, I'm going to be dead now. Um, and that happened day in and every night during the seven days and eight nights um, of my escape. And obviously, I didn't have any food for that period of time, very little water. In fact, I, when I'd separated from Stan, um, I ended up on my own. And I would say every single day, some nights, I was nearly compromised and caught. It was during the day, you had to remain still. And it's like going into your back garden onto concrete, lying there in the middle of winter and not moving. And it was horrendous. And you, it, you couldn't sleep. So it was a sleep deprivation exercise. Um, there was a couple of periods of time where I walked into a, a large, found out later it was a chemical plant, but it was guarded by the Republican Guard. And it was the, it was the cold that saved me because as I was walking through, I would see the barrels of anti-aircraft guns against the sky. And I would look over and I would see four Iraqi soldiers in their sleeping bags with blankets over their head. So it allowed me to creep round. If they had had a dog, they would have caught me straight away. As it, as it was, I started at the last day, I, I was stuck between a VCP and, a, and um, uh, an anti-aircraft battery very close to the Syrian border. Had you lost Stan at this point? Yes, I'd lost him. And, and there were several days I'd been walking by myself for several nights, sorry, and lying up. And um, as I started off, um, I started hallucinating. And this was to do with sleep and water deprivation. Um, I hadn't ate now for um, seven days and I hadn't drank any water for three days and the body can usually last three days. But in them conditions, you know, I was failing fast, like rapidly. And I can look back now and think it's quite comical where I was walking through the desert and I just got this massive punch on the back of my head, which put me down onto my knees. And I quickly turned around to see who'd punched me and there was nobody there. And I was like, what the hell is this about? And what it was doing, this is my brain drying out because there's no fluid up there. 
Then I was walking along and then I just got this static. When you get have an old TV and you hear that static, yeah. it was in my head and then another bang. And then I went down. I came around, I think probably about five, 10 minutes. And I thought that was a stupid place to fall asleep. Obviously shaking violently. My head's gone. Then, and this is the most weird thing, my daughter came out in front of me as a, as a two-year-old and she was putting a hand out for me to grab it and saying, Dad, Daddy, I could hear the rocks moving. I could see it moving. I don't know what I passed to the left of me or to the right of me. And it was a little woolen suit that she'd had on on Christmas Day before I deployed. And I didn't even like that woolen suit. And trying to grab her. And then um, I got to the border, crossed that. That was another. That was another like another story. But I managed to get into Syria, and then I collapsed. And I went down. I hit this wall. I broken my nose. And when I came to, I knew I was going to die if I don't get any help um, today. This is it. My body will like um, it'll just fold up. And um, I, in the distance, I could see a, a small structure. There was smoke coming out of it. I wasn't convinced. I was in a in Syria and uh, I walked up there was a young lady um, kneeling to it, like, next to her like an upturned walk there was an old man um, he was walking out the back, back with his goats and a young guy came out and um, I just started saying Syria Syria and he, he looked and I went Iraq Iraq and then he went no Iraq there and this is Syria Syria like this and I was like thank God for that because if we're in Iraq I was just about to kill you um, he gave me this bowl of water. I drank that. He ushered me into there, say like barn, and there was a there was a, like a paraffin heater there. And my main concern was my feet. Now I could smell my body. If you've ever been in the country and there's a dead fox or a dead badger, you will smell it, and it's roadkill. And it, I've been in the jungle where I haven't washed for three months, and yet you, there's a certain smell. And they're quite different. I could smell the roadkill on me. When I squeezed my fingers, there was green pus coming out. I had bed sores on my legs. Um, I'd, unbeknown to me, I'd lost 38 pounds in body weight. And oh. I, wasn't, I wasn't overweight during that period. I peeled my socks, socks off. And oh, the, the, the sight and smell was horrendous. I'd lost all my nails, all the blisters. There was like a green pus coming out of them and they were they were in a bad way i knew they were in a bad way because where every day when i was walking on them it was like walking on on cut glass and this put this this guy he just grabbed my socks and i think it was either his wife or sister he gave her them and said you know Shift something like wash them and i was like no 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 i'm fine um so long story short we ended up i stripped all my kit down Started walking into the town because I'd said to him, I need to see a policeman. As we're walking in, um, a camel farmer was driving back with his feed and he stopped and he could speak broken English. So he said, you'd give us a lift into town. As we're driving in, he kept touching the bag um, that the young lad had given me. And he said, do you have a weapon in there? Do you have a gun? And I went, no, no, there's no gun. He kept trying to touch it and this, that and the other. So on the outskirts of the town, we stopped and um, a guy came out dressed in the black robe. They had something to say, the driver. And the young guy looked at me with fear and got out and started to run back home. 
So as we're driving in, this guy said, uh, maybe I should take you back to Iraq and you speak to my cousins, you tell them what you've done, that and the other. And I'm like, no, no, kept trying to touch the bag. Well, we got to the center of the town and we pulled up into a gas station and there was a guy um, filling a container with diesel and he shouted at him. He came up, he didn't look at me, just looked down at the bag and ran back to the shed. I knew it was going to kick off. So I just went, grabbed it, started to drag, or get myself out the car. He grabbed my arm. I dragged him over the seats, kicked the door, like rammed his head in there. He then politely let go of me and I just started running. Now, I, I would have said I was sprinting and I turned around and there was a, a like a guy in his 80s just jogging behind me. But over his shoulder where that kid had run, there was a group of them closing in on me. And then I started running down the wrong way down the street towards the Iraq border. And people were then crossing over to stop me. And then I came across a guy with an AK-47 and I was like, polity, police, trying to think anything. What's the, what's the name for a police? And he went, Iowa, grabbed me in, kept the crowd at bay. I was processed in this police station, never told what they were going to do with me. They made me wear a dish dash and a shamag around my face. I got in, I saw my kit go into the back of the car. There was a driver and a passenger and they wouldn't, wouldn't speak or say anything. And um, as we're driving, it was probably about a two or three hour drive out into the desert. Um, I could see a group of cars waiting there. And the closer we got, there was one guy brandishing a pistol. And um, just as we pulled up, everything changed. They went really aggressive. They dragged me out, like hand on hair, ran me up, knelt me down next to the guy with the pistol, pushed my head forward and he pushed the pistol at the back of my neck. And I was like, you know, this is stupid things to say, but I was furious that I'd handed myself over to these guys. And why did not, why hadn't I tried to attempt to walk to Damascus? So it's what seemed to be like a lifetime. Um, I was bundled up, put in the back of this Mercedes. And as we're driving, I said to them, I, I, need, I can't breathe. Um, this is the hottest or warmest I'd been for 10 days. Well, when they, they left the shamag hanging over my face and I could, I could see they'd taped everything up, uh, the clock, the speedo, the radio station, everything. There was a driver, there was a passenger and a, and a rear passenger next to me. And I was aware they had outriders. And when we went through villages, they would pull the, 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 the shamag around my face and the outriders would have blocked everything and we would speed through. Well, we were still what in this- What your mind at this time? Well, well I'll tell you, it, um, it just about to get worse. Um, as we were going through, I could see this massive um, green um, road sign and I was expecting it to say uh, Damascus. And these guys knew what that was on the sign, so they allowed me to see it. And it just said, Baghdad. The passenger leant over and he goes, we're from Baghdad, we're Iraqis, you're going to prison. At my, I would say my backside was trailing along the back of the floor of the car because I thought they've tricked me. All they were doing is having a joke. But it, was, it just went over the top of my head. So, Sonia... This is a very, this is very important, this next bit. 
So I was sat there and I thought, right, they've tricked me. So you've got to get yourself mentally prepared for what's going to happen next. So I sat there, I didn't say a thing. And I was, I closed my eyes and I'm like, okay, we're going to end up in a, in a city. We're going to end up in the camp. What will happen is the door will open. There'll be a, probably about five or six soldiers. They're going to drag me out. They're going to start kicking me. They're going to hit me with the rifle butts. They'll drag me downstairs, still beating me. I'll get put on a on, in, on behind a desk and then I'm going to start getting um, interrogated and I'll be beaten. So I kept saying that over and over my head. So it felt normal. So it wasn't going to be a surprise. So I was ready for it. Well, bugger me. Um, the sun started going down and we ended up on the outskirts of a city. Uh, and there was another Mercedes there parked up. These guys all adjusted their dress, turned the radio off. And the front passenger got out. This well-dressed guy got in and uh, he, he turned to me and he said, uh, are you okay? And I went, yes. And he said, is this all of your stuff that these guys had stripped me of my knife, my ID discs, my watch and shit like that. And the, he said, it won't be long now. So we drove into this city, which was Damascus, and then into a compound, a heavily guarded compound. And unbeknown to me, it was the headquarters of their secret police. Well, when the door opened, I couldn't move my knees, my knees, my ankles had swollen up. And this guy just barked. And these two idiots that had been in the car lifted me up, up a set of stairs, past a, a guy in a uniform and a desk, I went into a lift and um, goes upstairs. The lift door opens. There's a guy in a, in a well-made suit, like a businessman, a city type of suit, and another guy standing next to him. The guy next to him said, I am interpreter. This is my boss. Please come in. And he said, please take a seat. Well, when I walked past the boss, I was just about to sit down and he said something in Arabic. He'd obviously smelt me and I stunk. So I was taken around several, through several offices, a dining room to, to the boss's private quarters and I was taken in there and the interpreter said, this is all my boss's personal um, cleaning facility. Uh, the boss was running a bath. He changed his razor blades. Um, they basically said, you know, spend as much time as you want in here. So again, I had a bath, which was a very painful experience. I had to empty the water out because it was black. You'd think I'd been down a mine, had a second bath, and that's when I jumped on the scales and I realized I'd lost 38 pound in body weight. I shaved my beard off. Um, during this time, a set of Y fronts and a white vest comes through the door. So I put them on and a young kid came in and he started taking my measurements, like all of this. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? He disappears. And then I end up in the bedroom and the boss looks at my feet and he, he says something to the interpreter. Within five minutes, there's a doctor up. He's bandaging and, you know, doing everything um, to patch everything up and putting like ointment onto the bed sores and various things. Then a suit turns up and I'm thinking, shit, I've told them that I, I was a medic on a helicopter going in to rescue a pilot. I hope it's not going to be a press conference where I've just lied. So I've got the suit on, tie, shirt. I couldn't put my shoes on because my feet were too painful. We walked back into his office, 
CNN was still on the news because I was worried that Israel had come into the conflict. It hadn't. The war really hadn't kicked off. And uh, he said, um, do you like something to eat? And I went, okay. So we went back into another room where it had been decked out with this huge feast. And these guys were so polite. I sat down and I took one piece of meat and it stopped there. My stomach had um, shrunk that much, but I was drinking lots of fruit juices. And then I got to the point where I said, I can't eat anymore. And he was like, fine, fine. Went back into the office and he said, <laughs> he, <laughs> he said, um, would you like to see some Syrian nightlife in, in the city? And I, 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 I was like, well, I'm with my feet, no, I'm there. He said, do you need to spend the, uh, the, the night in the company of a woman? I went, no, no, I'm fine. And then he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, really, I should go around to the embassy and talk to them. And he went, if you want to do that, okay. So he took me back into another room where all my equipment was. He said, check that, nothing had been taken. Unbeknown to me, these guys knew exactly who I was. They knew exactly the regiment I was because of all the equipment and everything else. They never tried to trip me up. And then a driver came around to take me to the embassy. And just as I was leaving, the boss said, um, you know, I, I want to visit the UK um, someday. Can I have your address? And it would be lovely to see you. So I give him my mum's address up in Roland's Gill. <laughs> he, he then... <laughs> He gave me his card and he said, if there's a problem, just book in and we'll sort it out. So I went to the embassy and that was a bit of a palaver because they didn't know there was any SAS troops lost or whatever. So then at one minute, you know, at one minute I'm talking to these guys saying, hey, we've got to get on to High Wycombe and pass these code words on. And they're like, well, how do we know you're not a spy? And I, then I went, there was a couple of, strong words and I went take a look at my body you know yeah. from this so we ended up sending um, some messages top secret messages they then said um, the safe is on a timer so we can't make you a passport to get you out of the country um, so we'll we will see if we can get you into a room in the hotel but there might be a problem because the law in Syria is if you don't have a passport you don't get a room didn't get a car to drive me down there. I walked in my stock and feet to this hotel, went in, the ambassador and the military attache said, you know who we are because we've got rooms here. This is a British citizen. He's, he's a tourist. He lost his passport. And the guy's like, no room. He can't stay in here. Out. He's got to go. So they had this, this um, conversation for 15 minutes. And I, I was up here and uh, I just said, here. This is the boss said, ring this number. And the military attache was, we can't bother him. And I was like that, ring them. So two Mercedes come screaming outside of the um, hotel. I saw um, four burly guys in leather jackets running towards the manager. The interpreter came to me and he said, Colin, I want you to, uh, in a moment, you're going to be invited to sign the register sign it in a name you can remember, but not your own. So I looked over my shoulder. There's the manager pinned up against the wall, getting pointed at. He comes over to me and he said, sir, sir, welcome to my hotel, please stay. And there was another key point. Throughout my escape, the other group of five guys 
every moment of the day, because they were a strong group, I I knew in in deep in my heart that they they would have escaped and they would have been rescued. And it was nearly a fight all the way to get back and join them. And in the middle of the night, there was a phone call came in from High Wycombe and they said, what happened to the emu? Now, the emu was a piece of equipment that you had to destroy and never, ever let the enemy get it. And that threw me because when he said that, I knew that nobody else had escaped and I couldn't get my head round how how they hadn't escaped, how they hadn't gotten out. And honestly, it was as if I had a chemical compound in myself. I looked at that ceiling and I would have sworn 24 hours before this, I would have slept for a week. And I just sat there and I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. Um, four days later, I managed to get out of the country and I never really rested until I got back to the, the squadron and then basically, it was three months later, um, after the conflict, they let me out uh, to get back to the UK to be tested because they, they, they found out I'd, I drank some effluent from um, a chemical plant and it was where they were producing yellow cake. And that's from like plutonium. Oh, that so, doesn't sound too good for you at all. It was, well, sometimes I used to glow in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no advantage uh, when you're out there skiing but. yeah but uh, the sad thing is in the group of five uh one guy bob consiglio he sacrificed his life for four guys he should have been given the vc um he engaged the enemy for 45 minutes before he succumbed to enemy fire uh one guy swam the euphrates and he died of hypothermia mm -hmm. so we lost two guys to cold and uh, one was shot and killed and another in that group was shot in the ankle but the iraqis allowed them all out at the end and they were handed over via the red crescent they were interrogated weren't they and, and yeah but i mean you expect that um their interrogations weren't as enhanced as some people have portrayed yes they were slapped yes they were hit with whips and sticks but you would expect that that's what we're trained for in our training on selection we go through a, an interrogation, which was probably far harder than what they went through. And it's just, you have to... What what sort of mindset do you have to put yourself in? I mean, you were talking then about you were in the car and you were picturing arriving at the headquarters and being dragged out and beaten. And you said you had to picture it over and over again to know what was going to, to know you were expecting that. Is you've got a, you've got a, a life shelf of 24 hours. So if you can hold out for 24 hours, the information you hold is useless. So they can kick you. Listen, you will you'll not understand this, but as a boy or a guy, when you've been in fights, after the first couple of punches, you don't feel them. Remember, Newcastle. <laughs> in fact, actually, I've seen I've seen a lot of girls in action down there, yeah, and they're frightening. But no, after them first few punches and whips and everything else, you don't feel it. So you've got to hold out, and you've just got to pray that you get to that twenty-four hour point, and then you can do whatever you want. When I mean, when you look back at this, and I'm sure you've done this a thousand times. Do you ever ask yourself why you got away? What? Why, why were you the survivor? What? What was it? 
Well, I, I've got the, um, first of all, I passed SAS selection where you are tested as an individual under arduous conditions. Secondly, I was trained in escape and evasion. Thirdly, I'm probably quite a stubborn person. And the fourth reason, I was frightened of dying. That's interesting. You were actually frightened of dying because it sounds like your account and everything you said, it's almost like you you, were, you felt like you could die and you were ready. It's not a great feeling when actually, I was probably a bit flippant, but when them first rounds pass over your head, they make a very distinct sound. And you, as a soldier, I'd seen the damage them rounds did to people and you don't want one of them hitting you. And they're invisible when they're going past, but you hear the crack as it's coming past you. And you know, it's about, you know, it's close and you could get killed. I can remember on that initial contact, I couldn't run anymore. I was so exhausted and I was running up the hill and I just kept looking down at my chest, waiting for that bullet to come through, you know? Um, but, you know, every, and if, anybody, if anybody tries to tell you they weren't frightened about dying, Really? I would actually check, check their mental uh, issue, uh, health issues. So that's fear is a great motivator. It will motivate you. And this is a problem we have on, say, SAS selection. You can only push guys to a certain point. You can't push them where they're dropping down dead or, you know, you're killing people. Um, to, but to replicate that, that escape, I, I couldn't replicate it. Um, and... And you know what? It wasn't the enemy troops. Was that what? What was the main problem? It was the it was the weather. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, I mean, looking back at it now, how how did it affect you? And and <laughs> well, see, with men mental illness, it was you know what? I was talking to Brian Wood, MC, yesterday. Yeah. I've met and he Brian. told me yeah, when he told what he told me when he came back from that uh, Danny boy. Um, he couldn't fit into his family. He resented them. He split up. And I was just listening to everything that I did. And it was, I was looking through life through the same eyes, thinking the same, but it was other people who noticed I was reacting differently and not a nice person to that point. Within three months, they'd sent me out to Zaire for God knows what reasons to evacuate months. to evacuate the embassy. And I was barking mad, but I didn't know it. And another thing, another funny thing was you the sergeant made your feet back in, in, intact. <laughs> oh no, no, it was six weeks I was back to normal. Um, but the mind certainly wasn't. Um, and the sergeant major had gone to a good friend of mine and said, listen. We think he's got uh, some issues. Uh, keep an eye on him. So my friend, rightly so, came to me, went, Colin, watch yourself because they're watching you, which made me even more paranoid. But what it did, if I was on a, a training course, I had to come top. If I was on a, a mental course, like a language, I had to get a distinction. I saw my family in way... In, in the way of my military career. So I went, I don't know what gripped me, but I just wanted to be this super soldier and, and win at everything. And then when we were in Zaire, a couple, of, a couple of silly comments that I wouldn't have reacted to basically 
involved like a punch up. Um, again, I didn't see the difference. I I can tell you a pretty harrowing story if you've got two minutes because I've got the artifact. If, have you got time? Yeah, of course. Two minutes. You'll not get this. No, no, definitely. I'm I'm loving this, Chris. I've got as long as as you have. Sorry, Sonia, I'll, get, I'll just get this up and I'll show you after I've told you the story. Um, we were out in, um, in Zaire and we were, it was basically an extraction because there was a lot of riots going on. And uh, when we got in country, um, it turned out that the embassy was a, brand, it was a brand new build and it was feeding four countries. And the foreign office didn't really want to evacuate. They wanted to keep it there. So every day I was phoning up, um, it was Douglas Hurd and Linda Chalker and give them a, giving them a brief. Tensions would rise and it would become very, very dangerous. Um, President Mobutu was raping his country and there was a lot of um, um, houses looted. And I mean, seriously looted, not just paintings like windows, everything was stripped out. And there was a lot of people getting killed. And sadly, I think within the second week, there was young kids starving to death on the streets. There was lepers at the, there was a hospital at the bottom of our, the embassy avenue. And there was lepers waiting outside to get body parts of people that were dying. So they weren't starving. Well, on one particular day, um, I had to wreck your route because uh, we were going to take the ambassador to the Portuguese embassy. And uh, there was myself and my driver, and uh, we were carrying weapons overtly, you know, on show. And we left the embassy and we we're driving into the, into the heart of Kinshasa. And there was a market going on. Nobody was buying anything. And I said, don't just stop the car. I want to look up here. And I don't know what, but there was something driving my head. And I got to this stall and I saw this wooden carving, which is absolutely, absolutely oh, wow. gross. Oh my it, God, it's, it's like a devil. Looks like yeah, well, you know what? You're the second person who has said that's like the devil. So I saw it and I wanted it and I had to have it. And I don't know what was driving me, but it was like, it was like some black magic and I was gonna do whatever. And I had to get my hands on this disgusting piece of artwork. And so I said to the guy how much, and I don't know, we started with 20, 20 bucks and I was like, not a chance. Uh, ended up down to $5, uh, but I didn't have my wallet. And I said, listen, I'm from the British embassy. I'm going to drive back up there and uh, you stay here and don't sell it. And he went, no, sir, sir. He said, um, five dollars will feed my family and that's enough money um I, i'm i will come with you and he said you don't have to bring me back i'll walk back now right okay well this is where it gets you're gonna have well you're gonna be horrified another thing that was happening in my head i was looking at people and i could see bullet holes in them or arms ripped off and i thought i'd been gifted by god because i could predict how people were going to die and these were my colleagues. I was about to say, have you, 
are you spiritual? Is there a, is there a no, no, I mean, no. And, but I was, I was convinced I was gifted by God now to predict how people were going to die. And I would look at them not laughing, but in my head, I was laughing, thinking, you don't even know how you're going to die. And I do. So we're driving up um, on the banks of the river Congo, which is one of the fastest flowing rivers in Africa. And, um, I turned around and I was looking at this guy and uh, then I looked at Duncan and I said, you know what? I'm not going to give him the five dollars. I'm just going to shoot him and we can dump him in the river. Wait, because uh, this disgusts me and it haunts me and it, 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 I get like quite emotional about it because it's not me. And Duncan looked at me and he said, if you shoot him, he said, you're clearing the car up. He said, I'm not wiping, I'm not wiping that up. And I had my hand on my pistol and I pulled around in there with the pistol. And as I looked at the guy, I could see his brain splattered up the back of the car wall and on the roof. And I turned around and I went, yeah, screw that. I ain't cleaning that shit up. We stopped at the embassy. I, I walked into the embassy. I got the $5. The guy was standing holding this like... He was holding this. I could see the fear in his head, in his eyes. I gave him the five dollars, and he ran. And he the the reason he ran is because he understood English. Oh my! And God. it it sent. I keep this as a, a reminder yeah. of how nuts <clears throat> I I was. So at that so after that incident, at what point did did you seek help? Did someone say? But, but this is you're going to like this one as well. So. Got back to uh, got back to Hereford. I got got a message saying the CEO of the regiment wants to see you. So I walked in, said, "Hello, boss. How are you?" He went, uh, "Fine. How are you?" I went, "Yeah, fine." Uh, it was lunchtime. He said, "Listen, um, we've got two um, people from uh, the medical uh, bo like board here." He said, "One's a psychiatrist, one's a psychologist, and they want to set up an office." And he said, "Obviously, we don't want these people here." because of the nature of the jobs we do, and we don't need anybody spilling their guts. He said, when you go through that door in five minutes, you tell them you're absolutely fine. And I went, okay, boss. Went in there. They had this like whiteboard set up. They were both sat either side of it. There was a jug of water on there. And they said, um, a normal person, the water level on a jug is like halfway. If you're stressed, it's up to the neck. And he said, at the minute, you will probably be overflowing. Do you feel like that? And I went, no. Then they said, can we ask you a number of questions? And I was like, yeah, yeah. So do you have any nightmares? I went, no. So that was the first lie. Hi. How's family life? Great. Second lie. Um, have you, um, do you think you've got any personality changes? I'm like, absolutely not. Fourth lie. And there were several questions where I just lied. And they said, so... Um, what do you want to talk about? I said, I don't really want to talk about anything. And they said, well, what would you like to do? I went, well, it's lunchtime. I want to go for my run. And they just went, okay, then. I was barking, but because of the pressure I was put under by the hierarchy to lie about it, I just just lived with it. So the, the hierarchy, your bosses made you lie, knowing fine well that you were suffering. 
Mm-hmm. And all the other guys from the patrol. And really, I mean, I sat with this, these guys and I went, you shouldn't really be talking to me. You should be talking to the ones that were captured. I mean, you're also putting other people's lives in danger if you're not. Well, you see, there was a lot of guys. It, when I was getting ready to leave the regiment, was quite a few guys started committing suicide. Yeah. And since then, because we've had them two embedded campaigns in back in Iraq, you know, Iraq 2 and Afghanistan, um, some regiment guys have committed suicide. SBS guys have committed suicide. Young soldiers in the infantry have committed suicide. In fact, Brian, Brian Wood was telling me he, on, his, on one of his tours, he had to go back in and, you know, um, recover a body of a young soldier that had shot himself in his mouth. Um, and this is a this is a really sad within the military. Most soldiers join because you're either coming from a broken home, mm-hmm. poverty, or abuse. I I was lucky. Um, I came from a loving family, but we were relatively poor. We weren't rich in any way, and all I wanted to do was travel. And my father wasn't interested. We we would go to Hexham for our summer holidays. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's 15 miles up the road. I could run here, you know? Um, so I just wanted to see the world. But again, so you've got a lot of servicemen who who want that like form of a new family. And then over the last 20 years, they've, they've seen a lot of action in the Iraq, Second Gulf War and Afghanistan, a lot of horror. They come back and you're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea in terms of, do I say I don't want to go back out there and let my colleagues down or do I just get out? They get out, they don't have a family to go back to. And the other thing, and you know this as a businesswoman, to, to be successful in civilian life, you have to have all your faculties, you have to be switched on. These kids joined the army at 16 or 18. They had their wages, their food, their health care, their beds, their uniforms, everything catered. All of a sudden, they're out. They and, don't and have and any regimented life, a life where you know exactly what time you're getting up, get, going to bed, and everything in between. Presumably, there's no yep. thought of what do I do now? How how do I go to the doctors? How how do I just do simple tasks? That is, no, is- totally. And and also, some soldiers think, well, I was in the army and I was told I was the best of the best. And uh, you come a civilian, and mate, all you are is an ex-soldier. And if you haven't got a skill set, you're not going to do it. Now, a lot of guys, they will go through the army career. The sensible ones will do a lot of um, courses where they will either get, um, you know, their their grades in security management or, you know, whatever, whatever takes their fancy. Some guys, some guys became actual medical doctors. Some guys became welders, um, blacksmith, um, you know. Some guys spent most of the time in university doing whatever. And um, I've but, spoken to some people as well that now do provide transition services, but they're nothing to do with the government. They're voluntary people that are doing it out of the goodness of their heart because they're either ex-military. So there are organisations out there, but but it really should come from the government. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. give your life to serve. Well, um, it should be structured, put it that way. But again, the sad thing is... Um, I think it's still the same. If a homeless person commits suicide, it doesn't go on any register. So we have no idea how many servicemen ended up homeless and have killed themselves. 
Chris, at any point were you actually diagnosed with PTSD? Or, or... Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yes, that was another one. <laughs> yeah, they did. They sent me to, it was, there was a facility in Worcester and the, it was the top, um, like, psychiatrist. Um, and he said, you've got the worst case of PTSD. And I was like, really? <laughs> and, but my re-entry into civilian life, I was, I was very, very lucky. Um, I said I was running two big bodyguard teams, but all the guys in the bodyguard team were ex-regiment guys who I knew from the SAS. So although we were working in a civilian environment, we still had the black humor with one another. And I think my re-entry was tapered to come in. And then off, I went into publishing and then did some TV work. So financially, I was okay. Um, and mentally, I felt okay. But I, 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 I'm I, I certainly believe time is... Is the, is the greatest healer of, it, of everything. And, I, and there's a lot more people coming out now saying talk. Yeah. But the, the other thing, PTSD can be abused exactly the same way as back pain. And I don't want to go down that route as, you know, saying yeah. people are abusing it, but there's always that case where if somebody can't get a job or his behavior is bad, he blames it on PTSD. What I would say to them, what I'd ask them is, how much did you drink the night before? And a lot of guys will self-medicate on alcohol and drugs. I've met quite a few of them. And all you do is make that problem a big problem. What are your, or have you gone through different forms of recovery or um, are there any sort of tips, advice um, that, that you have that helped you? I mean, I, I, I presume, and I don't want to speak for you, but do you have dark days now? Do you have times where? Um, yeah, but the silly things, um, I, I'm looking, but this is just an example. I actually got myself worked up uh, the other day because I've got to get a COVID test to enter back into the UK. Oh, God, don't start me on COVID. <laughs> but, yeah, so basically, I went to the med centre. They don't do it. I went to the pharmacy. They don't do it. Then I went to a friend and they went, no, the, the med centre does it. And then I, was, I started panicking, thinking, I'm not going to get out of here. And I'm thinking, whoa, why do I need to get out of here in the first place? It's a comfortable home, loads of room. Um, so it's little things. Uh, I think... You've just got to get a grip. And like I say, back maybe uh, 15, 20 years ago, if you, if I felt sad about the guys, I may have a, like a, you know, sit, sit reading a book, have a drink. And now if I feel like there's a, like a, cl a cloud above, I stay well, well clear of alcohol and I don't, we, I don't care what setting it is. There's been times in the past when I've been invited to dinner and I've just said, I'm not drinking now to the French that they, yeah, they can't handle it, but I'll just say no alcohol, and I'll I'll take myself out for a long walk and do some exercise, and I think that gets the endorphins in mm -hmm. your head. It just gets some, you get some perspective of of life, and there's always somebody worse off than yourself. So you know, I mean, my brother he has a, a manual job still in Newcastle, and you know, I said to him, and it, w it was actually the wrong thing to say. I said, oh, I'm feeling down. And he had, he, it was like pulling a pin on a grenade. He went, what the hell have you got uh, to feel down for? 
he said get it get in the real world and you know it's perspective it is and, it, and this is your real world this is this is your world yeah you if you looking looking back now um did the army i mean do you felt let, let down by the army we haven't talked about the fact that did they send a rescue mission in do they even no no they they wrote us off but i mean my thought process is you know, there's a reason a, a soldier has an army number um, because you're a piece of equipment. Every piece of equipment you have, whether it be a watch, um, a computer, a torch, a gun, it has a serial number and you're a piece of equipment and um, a soldier can be expendable. And you won't probably believe this. When we go to war or get involved in a conflict, there's a sliding chart and it's how many guys you can lose. And next to these, say, if it's four guys, you know, no problem type of thing. And then when it gets up to about, say, 100, you've got big problems. So it's always, it's always vectored into the equation that you're going to lose guys. The, the other thing as well, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if they had sent in a rescue mission with, say, 64 guys on a helicopter, and then that got shot down by the Iraqis. Because... And I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to say something, and it's going to be quite controversial, but I'm not pushing any slight onto the other guys. I stuck by our um, SOPs, our standard operating procedures, which is hard. Every member of that patrol that got caught broke SOPs to the point of walking during the day, getting into a taxi, speaking to civilians, if they'd stuck to SOPs, they would have all gotten out. And that's why we have SOPs and procedures. I knew from that point or that first night, the helicopter wasn't coming in. Um, it's different. The Americans, I mean, I, I went to uh, the Kennedy Center uh, in Fort Bragg loads of times to, to lecture on my escape. And there was a guy from their special forces picked me up at the airport and he said, oh, what are you talking about? I went, oh, my escape and evasion. And uh, I said, oh, right. He, no, he said, all right. And he, I said, um, just small talk. And he said, oh, I was involved in a, um, an escape and evasion in the first Gulf War. And I went, how long did you do? And he went, 17. And I was sat in the back. I went, 17 days. He went, no, 17 hours. He said, how? He said 17 hours. And they had 37 aircraft flying above them, protecting them, bringing them home. And then he said to me, um, how long was yours? And I went, seven days, eight nights. And there was a big silence. And he said, was there no aircraft uh, coming in for you? I went, there was nobody, mate. <laughs> because that's the British Army. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> Do you still speak to the survivors, the other guys? Um, I, well, speak to the squadron. Everybody's split to, you know, the the um, the four winds. But I, I see see the guys from my squadron and stuff like that, uh, from my troop and from other other members. In fact, there was a guy out here uh, for a week. Um, he came out for a week skiing, but they closed all all the ski lifts. Uh, he was ex regiment, uh, so yeah, we just had uh, we swung the lamp and uh, told all the stories. <laughs> <laughs> you showed him the devil. <laughs> um, Chris, just quickly on, on your writing. I mean, 
do you think that's helped you as well? With no, the first, I'll tell you what, there's two, two things I did. Um, the first book, it brought back a load of memories and there were, none of them were good. None of them were good. It was a horrible experience. And about, I think it would have been about five years ago, uh, National Geographic History um, were doing a run on programs and they came out and um, I, I was getting debriefed in a chalet in the village and the debriefings went on for about six hours per day and I was traumatized um, because I was going into minute detail and in some cases I'd even forgot about it but it was coming back then I was coming back to the house going to bed and I was lying in bed and just running I could hear my voice and I could hear you know different sounds and then I would think of something else so I'd write notes down go back to them and say this is this happened here this happened there and it was like being raped from the inside out or like a head rape and I swore I would never ever do it again now as far as the novels that's that's just excitement for me and it's a way of ex escaping probably reality with the children's books I have a, a, a huge passion to try and get young boys to read. So I'm a, like that old fashioned type of guy where I, I believe if a child is underdeveloped at school, he doesn't spend much, well, he doesn't have much chance of getting a job, but if he can read once the, you know, the penny drops, he can then take himself off to whether it be open university or another facility to learn a subject. Because a, a lot of young certainly boys they're at that age when they're at school testosterone's getting pumped around their body they're not interested in what the teacher's got to say and it's not until they're like 18 or 20 they they they, they bloom and they realize they've got a head on them as long as they can read if you'd have your life again and you weren't in the military what would, would you have been a journalist <laughs> i've thought about that and there wasn't anything rosy because Again, I was that boy who sat in the classroom. I worked out that, um, in fact, actually, when I went to school, I went through a terrible period. And it was when they amalgamated uh, the grammar schools with the secondary modern schools. And I ended up at Hookergate. And so you had the secondary modern teachers there, the grammar school teachers, and they hated one another. And they weren't gonna work with the secondary modern school. It was overcrowded. So I knew in, a, in an hour's in a class, um, there's probably two minutes when that teacher can ask me a question. So I'd have my nose stuck out that window thinking, what will it be like when I join the army? Little did I know, or my thought process was that somebody would give me a uniform, a gun, probably send me off to a, a campaign. Um, I didn't realize that there was an educational aspect to your career within the army. So when you, you go up the rank structure, you have to have a certain amount of qualifications. And it wasn't until I was in the army and I had a very rude awakening um, that education, I could have saved myself a lot of heartache if I'd worked harder at school. And I was sent off to do a German Alpine Guides course, which meant I had to speak German fluently, write it and be able to read it. I, I even had to wear a German uniform. Which was, oh. which was funny in its own right. <laughs> it wasn't before, I, I'm not that old where it was during the Second World War, but uh, 
So um, I went down to Beaconsfield on a, I think it was a 12-week colloquial course, and I was in a room full of colonels and generals who had commanded their regiments in, Ger in Germany. So the course was run at a really fast pace. And I, I was at a real strain at keeping up in terms of working out the grammar and various other things. So I phoned my Sergeant Major up and I said, Al, I don't think I'm gonna pass this course so maybe send somebody else down. And his reply was, telling you now, if you don't pass, don't come back. So my next port of call, and thankfully, thankfully, the education officer had been an ex-teacher. I went to him and I said, sir, I'm finding this really difficult. Would you give me extra work and I will give you everything, you know, so I pass. And this guy, he was, he was a lovely person. He would, on an evening, he'd say, come round to my place. His wife could speak German. He used to have me at the table. He would explain, you know, grammar. In some cases, it was English lessons. And then he would give me a, a, um, a list of words that I had to know the next morning. I think I was living on about two or three hours sleep every day. And then I would slip back into the class. And within two weeks, I was up to a grade where I could keep up with everybody else only because of the kindness of this man. Mm. But I, again, it was a lesson that I, I learned. It's what effort you put in mm. is shown at the end. And I went across. And, but when I got to Germany, because the course is run in uh, Garmisch, well, Mittenwald, it's a very strong dialect. So... Um, the first sentence, the guy said, hock to he. And I'm like, I, I haven't heard that word. And he was saying, take a seat. And I was like, isn't it a Normandy Platzbit? But I spent the first six months in a tent with three Germans. And then I was thinking in German. And uh, after a year, what was interesting um, my troop came over to Germany on a ski for a couple of weeks skiing, and I said I would instruct them. When the guys were coming down the slope, I couldn't immediately shout to them, bend your knees further or your back. I was saying it in my head in German, and I was thinking, what, how do I, um, what's the translation or the correct translation? Because there's some saying, uh, like, Nifarin is Skifarin, and there's no translation to that, but it's all to do with the knees and the up and down. And I knew I could speak German when I was actually thinking it and then having to think about English. Um, but uh, yeah, it was good days. So what's next, Chris? I mean, you've done a lot of TV writing, you're writing your books and you've got your podcast. Yeah, they've what? been they've been really easy. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the podcasts, um, chatting with people and listening to their, you know, stories, struggles in some cases. Um, What's it's, the name for you with the podcast? Is there a name or is it? You know what? Um, it was a guy called Sam Delaney. He, he was an ex-journalist. Um, and I worked with Sam 20 years ago on some of them guy magazines like Nuts and things like that. And he contacted me whilst he was in America. And uh, he said, um, would you be interested in doing a, like a military-based podcast? I didn't know what. And I said, what are they? He went, well, we'll get guests. You'll talk to them, ask them questions and go from there and I, I to be truthful I was I'm not really interested no I'm quite a shy person believe it or not uh, and uh, you know no. I don't yeah I don't I don't 
I'm not ballsy when I go into a room full of people. Um, I can be quite shy. You haven't done a lot of podcasts. I know that you haven't done. It's, I don't, um, I'm trying. I'm trying to be about ten or twelve. But anyway, so we started, and I. Um, it actually went really well, but I think that was the quality of the guests I was having, and they had stories to tell. And I've just found it really interesting. I actually look forward to them now. Um, it's just like a chat. It's just a new medium. Uh, the next thing will be World Book Day, and there will be a lot of Zoom calls to schools. Um, we'll see how that goes. And you know, once lockdown comes, I, I like to visit schools, and you know, I'll do a talk and. Um, and try and convince the kids on the merit of reading, <laughs> which in some cases and can be really hard. But one thing I, I certainly know, a child's education is dictated on a lot of times of what they're subjected to at home. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. I could talk to you all day. Yeah. I have come to my final question, uh, which is if you were to write a message in a bottle for future generations to find, what would that message be? Ooh. Well, there's, Sonia, it's, it's really difficult because there is a lot of regrets and it would have to just be, you know, live life as it comes and enjoy life because it is so fragile it can be taken away on a second you know um and just look after yourself be be sensible about everything you do exercise your eating your mental health try and smile every single day because you know by crying every day and being miserable you you, you know you're wasting it i don't you know from that so Chris, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having me. No, thank you. It's been lovely meeting you. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.